in the book of Acts. And this week there's a transition that takes place in the story that our author Luke is telling. If you remember way back to the beginning of Acts in chapter 1, Luke laid out the trajectory for this story of the spread of Christianity. There in verse 7, Luke records Jesus telling his disciples, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after saying that, he left them. He ascended into the heavens, and they were left on the earth to begin Jesus' work here and now. It's a work of witnessing to the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ in both word and deed that the Christian is given. It's a work powered by the Holy Spirit. It is a work that is constantly expanding like a vine that puts out runners throughout all the world. The gospel first took root in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago, and Luke charts Christianity's expansion into Judea and Samaria, Africa and Italy, until eventually it's reached to America, Mexico, Guatemala, Indonesia, the Netherlands, right? But our story this morning marks the gospel's first departure from Jerusalem, its place of origin. We're moving on, not leaving Jerusalem behind, but launching from it as if it were a trampoline vaulting the gospel to new heights. From now on, we'll be hearing about Paul and Silas and Barnabas and Timothy globetrotting and bringing the gospel with them wherever they go. The Holy Spirit has convinced the early Christian church that Gentiles are just as eligible for salvation as any Jew, and Christians are forced to overcome their ethnic and racial biases out of obedience to Jesus' intention to extend grace into all the world. They cannot deny the fact that the Spirit does not discriminate based on race or sex or age or disability or tax bracket, so God forces them out of their comfort zone, out of Jerusalem and into the unfamiliar. But as the focus is shifting away from Jerusalem, Luke tells one last Jerusalem story in chapter 12. It's the story that we're looking at together this morning. It is the story of Herod and Peter. It's a story that reads like a speech you might hear at a high school or even college graduation. It's part explanation of the real world, right? And part warning, part advice about how to thrive in that world. In Herod, we we see the real world, as it were. Herod epitomizes how the, the world functions with his determination to make a name for himself. He was determined to make it big, to leave his mark on the world, to chase his dreams, to shoot for the moon, and at least he'd land among the stars, right? If he were growing up today, he would have probably been told the same thing our children are told. Don't let anyone doubt you. Don't listen to the haters. Never compromise or sacrifice. Be true to yourself alone. And boy, was Herod ever true to himself alone. Talk about ambition. Herod was saturated with it. Luke introduces Herod as Herod the king in verse 1, but it wasn't always this way. We're meeting Herod at the end of his story, when after things had finally began to break his way and years of scheming were finally bearing fruit for him. Before he was Herod the king, though, He was just Agrippa, just Jenny from the block. Yes, he was born to royalty. He was the grandson of Herod the Great, but assassinations and coups were commonplace in Roman politics, and being born to royalty was no guarantee that you would ascend the throne, and the throne is where Agrippa had set his sights. So the young Agrippa jockeyed for position. 
He took out loans for large amounts of money, and he would wine and dine the most promising young men in the empire, hoping to get in their good graces should their shining stars actually rise to a prominent position in Rome. But he got himself into debt with all this courting, and he soon found himself chased around the Roman Empire by collectors trying to collect their money. And while on the run, he acquired a reputation for being untrustworthy, duplicitous. Agrippa would hedge his bets by making contradictory promises of allegiance to opposing rulers. And this is the sort of behavior that eventually landed him in prison. The bribes and the loans had gotten him in trouble, but his treasonous behavior is what landed him on death row. The emperor Tiberius had become suspicious of Agrippa's promotion of Tiberius's son Gaius. And fearful of a coup from his own son, Tiberius had Agrippa thrown in jail. And it's only when Tiberius died and Gaius actually ascended to the throne that the tide began to turn for Agrippa. Gaius not only released Agrippa from prison, but he made Agrippa a king from, from rags to riches. Even after Gaius' assassination, Agrippa's good fortune continued to roll because taking Gaius' place as emperor of Rome was a childhood friend of Agrippa's, Claudius, one of those shining stars that Agrippa had invested so much money in, perchance he might rise to a prominent position in Rome. And here he was, Claudius, the Roman emperor, Agrippa's boyhood friend. His gambles and his bets paid off, and he achieved his dreams. For all those years, he had blocked out all those haters and doubters, and look where he was now, Herod the king. But all the palaces and guards in the world couldn't have erased Herod's vulnerability. He might have been king, but he was incredibly insecure. He knew that he almost didn't make it. He knew it didn't have to happen this way. He knew that there were a hundred other ambitious young men aspiring, perhaps even actively plotting, to take his place. He knew this because he was one of them. He got to where he was through sheer determination of will, by grinding it out day after day after day, by stepping on the heads of others, by never taking his eyes off his prize and blocking out all the noise around him. He couldn't stop now. There's no letting up. He had more power now, but now he had to protect what he had earned. He may have been king, but because he relied solely on his own ingenuity and intelligence, he was as insecure as ever. And you see this in his treatment of James and Peter, right? Christianity was a constant threat to Herod. Christians were men and women who pledged their allegiance to a foreign king and refused to participate in the worship of the Roman Empire, the pacification of the Roman gods, upon whom the whole empire relied for peace and prosperity and security. So Herod began to eliminate the leaders of this threat, this new religion. In verse 2, we read that Herod had James murdered, one, number of the, one member of the inner circle of three among the twelve apostles. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, a a large influential segment of his constituents, we're told in verse 3 that he then had Peter put in jail with the intention of killing him too. Herod was king, and yet he's still currying favor. Only now it wasn't with those over him, it was with those beneath him, with his constituents. He was king, and yet beholden to the demands of those beneath him like a politician in an election year. 
He was surrounded with reminders that he was actually quite powerless. Even in Peter's imprisonment that we read about, he was thwarted. Peter had already earned himself a reputation for breaking out of jail, and Herod was going to make sure it wouldn't happen again. We read in verse 4 that four squads were appointed to guard Peter, 16 soldiers for one man, always four men with Peter around the clock. Two would be chained to him, and two would stand guard at the door. Herod had a constituency to please, and the last thing he wanted was to appear incompetent, like the operation he was running was incapable of even holding a man in prison until his court date. And yet that's precisely what happened. An angel miraculously broke Peter out of jail a second time, and Herod's insecurity boiled over into fury. Herod the king, the king, personally searched the prison for Peter. And then he personally examined the guards before ordering that all 16 soldiers be put to death. It's a fragile, fragile man, the king. The opposite side of the same coin of Herod's fragility was his tendency to put on airs, right? To project confidence into the world when in reality he was incredibly insecure. And we see him doing this very thing at the end of our story. He was essentially starving the the people of Tyre and Sidon. There was a famine in in that region of the world. And those two countries relied on food coming out of the region that Herod ruled over. But in his fragile state, in his tyranny, he cut off all aid to those countries, and they came to him begging for mercy, for relief. In verse 21, we see Herod graciously stooping to grant them an audience. He puts on his finest royal robes. He sits on his gilded throne, and he delivers a fine prepared speech. And when this people, who don't really have much choice in the matter if they want to eat again, begin to praise him as a god and not as a mortal man, Herod has the audacity to absorb their praises. He has no choice. His, his, his ego is fragile. Glory is his fuel. He has to say, I earned this. And the Bible tells us that this is an utterly deadly way of life. For Herod, it was literally deadly. But from the very beginning, humanity has been grabbing for glory, glory that belongs to God alone, scrapping to make a name for ourselves and to be somebody. But it either turns us into a a fragile tyrants like, like Herod or dejected losers in the game of glory, right? You're either on one side or the other in this game. But in Peter, in Peter, we experience an entirely different way of life. Luke tells Peter's story to show how Jesus utterly transforms the way Christians engage the world and live in it. Peter, and and James for that matter, demonstrate an utter disregard for themselves. The world, as we saw in Herod, says, sacrifice for no one. Be true to yourself alone. And yet, if we adopt this mantra, then how in the world will we ever live as Christians? If we tell our children to block out all the haters and trust yourself alone, don't sacrifice for anything, then how can we expect them to follow Christ? Christianity demands sacrifice. Jesus demands that if anyone decides to follow him, they must do what? Just deny themselves. Pick up their cross daily. So Peter and James show an utter disregard for their own lives. They live the way Jesus has called us to live. James literally died, and Peter had every expectation that he was going to as well. 
But for Peter and James, this was more than just mere obedience to a bare command. This was obedience that issued forth out of, out of love and an experience of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, Peter and James, in every Christian sense, already has what Herod and the rest of the world wear themselves out pursuing. It's a free gift that they've already been given, that you've already been given. Herod says, I earned this. And we say, it's been given to us. I've done nothing. You want to be somebody, right? You want to be a somebody in this world? Jesus has made you a child of the living God. The God who in infinite wisdom and power created the vast galaxies and the intricate complexities of creation, the God who miraculously formed you in your mother's womb even, has adopted you as his child. He delights in you. He smiles at you. He orders your world so that you can flourish in it. In Jesus, you already are somebody. You have nothing more to prove. You want to be a part of something big? You want to leave a legacy? How about the redemption of humanity? and all of creation from our brokenness and sin. In Jesus, the Christian has been brought into this cosmic story of redemption. He's making all things new in this world, and he does this work through Christians, through the church, who are the instruments in his hands. We are his hands themselves, but it's Jesus who does the work. We get all the privilege of participation without any of the pressure of performance. He's working in and through the church, to redeem the world. Can there be anything bigger than that? You want to make a lot of money so that you never have to think about it again? Well, don't you know you can't take it with you? The Egyptians filled their tombs with treasures because they believed they would be a comfort to them in the afterlife. But we've cracked open those tombs and all that's in there is a dead body and some beautiful artifacts. You can't take it with you. But Jesus has given you spiritual riches that far outweigh the purest gold this world has to offer. He has made you rich with grace, with love, possessions that can never be taken from you and will never wear out. The moth will not eat them. Rust will not destroy them. In Jesus, you have something far more valuable than money. You want a name for yourself? Jesus calls you mine. He calls you his brothers and sisters. Jesus has been given a name that is above every name. He's he's the most famous person to ever walk this earth and he's willing to share his name with you. He's willing for you to say, I'm a Christian. I'm a little Christ. There's no title greater than that of a Christian. And yet how many people scoff at that name or surround it with suspicion? It's an honor. It's a name greater than counsel or doctor or your highness. You're a Christian. Everything else is categorized underneath that heading. These things belong to you the moment you believe. They can never be taken from you and they were given to you for free. All that is Jesus's becomes ours the moment we shift our allegiance from ourselves to Jesus. Which sounds nice to us, but Peter and and James demonstrate what happens when you actually live out these realities. When you let that sink into you and permeate your soul. You suddenly show an utter disregard for yourself. And your focus is the glory of God alone. You'll be willing to sacrifice your dreams, your reputation, your job, or a better paying job your status in society. You begin to hold all things loosely in this world because you're holding tightly to Jesus. It changes the way you pray even. The church praying for Peter was not praying for his release from prison. They had every expectation 
that Peter would suffer the same fate as his good friend James. So they prayed for his soul and for the glory of God. In Peter's imprisonment, their concern was that Peter would remain faithful to Jesus to the end of his life and that Jesus would receive glory from someone willing to die for him rather than deny him. And we know this was their prayer because they were said to have been praying earnestly in verse 5. This is the same word that, was, that described Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's no duplicity in earnest prayer. There's no asking for one thing but believing another will happen in, in earnest prayer. The church prayed earnestly for Peter in his imprisonment, and yet they were genuinely surprised that God broke him out of prison for a second time. They did not believe the servant girl who had answered Peter's knock at the door. They would rather believe that she had lost her mind or even that she had seen Peter's ghost. They did not believe that Peter was actually standing at the door. And if you look at verse 16, Peter had to bang on the door continually for them to even open it and find him alive and well. They did not believe it could be true. But if they were praying for him to be released, and then did not believe him to be released when their prayers came true, then you could never categorize that prayer as an earnest prayer. Now they were surprised because they believed Peter was going to be killed. They were praying not for his release, but for his soul, for God's glory. Possessing Jesus in this world radically changes the way you pray, the way you live. You don't pray entirely for the end of suffering in your life, but for faithfulness to Jesus in the midst of it. You no longer pray for money, but for, but for protection from the seduction of that false security. You don't pray for vindication, but for divine rest in Jesus' opinion of you alone. Christian prayers reflect the self-forgetfulness that Jesus brings to life. We are created to glorify God, but it means you must forget about yourselves. Let me say that again. We were created to glorify God, but it means you can forget about yourselves. This is the blessedness of Christianity. You don't have to think about yourselves any longer. Jesus remembered you while dying on the cross so you can forget yourselves and live. You can expect the world to treat you like Peter and James, but Jesus has overcome the world. He's made you a somebody. He's made you richer than you can possibly ever dream or imagine. He's working through you to accomplish something big. He's given you a name. It's His name. And may you be satisfied in Him alone. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.